Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Oh, Jeff came to the rescue. Cody was the pulpit carry guy today, but he had to go to Bastrop because Kevin was sick this morning. He's our Bastrop campus guy, so y'all pray for Kevin today. It's good to see you guys. Are y'all staying cool? I mean, can it get any hotter? It feels like Texas now, so... Uh, everybody's like, well, Texas doesn't have the humidity. No, neither does my oven, but it kind of pretty hot. You don't want to live there. You know, tomorrow is Blake's birthday. Did y'all know that? Yesterday, yeah, we should have sung happy birthday. Uh, can we get Blake back out here? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yesterday was Warren's birthday, so they were almost twins by two days, which I think is probably Blake's worst nightmare. Then Blake and Warren would have been twins. Wouldn't that be great? Um I just read this past week that Chick-fil-A, hey, shout out to Chick-fil-A, for the eighth straight year was the number one restaurant in America, Chick-fil-A. How cool is that? And you know, when you think about the environment that we're in and the pushback that has been a part of Chick-fil-A, I mean, they've been accused of supporting hate groups like Focus on the Family and Salvation Army. That's how crazy this world is. And yet for the eighth straight year, Chick-fil-A is the most popular restaurant in America. And I've got to say, I don't really get it. I mean, it's like a chicken sandwich place, right? No offense. Great chicken sandwich. But, you know, I mean, come on. It's, It's a chicken sandwich. But let me say this. It's so much more than that, isn't it? Because here's what happened at Chick-fil-A. And, and true, Kathy, it, it all kind of comes from this, this foundation of faith and excellence and everything that he does. But here's what it comes down to. He turned serving a chicken sandwich into a labor of love. And that's the difference. So when you go there, you know, I'm not just getting a chicken sandwich. I'm getting loved. What's the phrase they always say, everybody at the counter? What do they say? My pleasure, right? My pleasure. It's always, and you get the idea. I need some more ketchup. My pleasure. I don't want pickles. My pleasure. You get, the, you get the feeling that no matter how discourteous you could be as a customer, they're still going to come back with my pleasure. And it's very hard to get upset with someone who's saying, it's my pleasure to serve you. Do you feel what's going on there? You know, not only is there that a soft answer turns away wrath, that's a biblical idea, But at the same time, what they're saying is, I get joy out of serving you. And who doesn't want to be around somebody who really feels joy and pleasure in serving you? Maybe that's why it's the number one restaurant in America. And maybe as a church, we could be wise to take a page out of the Chick-fil-A playbook. Because you see, we're in the service business too. And truthfully, what we're serving has far greater spiritual implications for eternity than even a chicken sandwich. So why don't we do it with love? And why don't we express it through joy? I really think that's the essence of Philippians chapter 2. So let's go there. Philippians chapter 2, this is the book of joy, right? And we've been focusing on joy all summer long. And Paul is in prison and he's writing to these people in Philippi about joy, which is extraordinary. There's this resiliency to the joy. And last time we talked about the secret of joy and I compared it to finances. Maybe you were here. Maybe you remember if you want. Let me let me stir up by way of reminder. 
You know, with, with finances, there are two sides to finances. There's the expense side and there's the income side. And if your expenses exceed your income, you're always going to live with a financial deficit. And that financial deficit's going to make you financially unhappy, right? Well, emotionally, it's very similar to that. You have the expense side of emotions, which are expectations, and you have the income side of emotions, which is experience. And if you are always expecting more than your experience can produce, then you're always going to live with an emotional deficit. And that's going to create things like frustration, anger, sadness, sorrow, all those things. And so it's interesting to me that we always want to deal on the income side of the problem, right? If I've got a financial problem, what's the answer? I need to make more money. When in truth, 90% of the time, the answer is you need to decrease your expenses. Well, the same is true emotionally. When I've got emotional deficit and I'm feeling sad or whatever, what do I need? I need something else to make me happy. So what's that something else? Well, it's another person, it's another thing, it's another experience, but I've got to have something that's going to bring more happiness into my life because I've got an emotional deficit. And yet Paul says, here's the answer. It's not about trying to work on the income side. It's about dealing with the expense side. Your problem is your expectations. It's all about you. It's all about what you expect, what you demand, what you want. And look at what he says. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And then he gives us the model. He says, have this attitude in yourself, in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And now look at verse 6. Who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto. So here's Jesus, preexistent with God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things came into being by Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being. He's preexistent with God. And yet part of God's sovereign plan is that He's going to redeem the world through the death of His Son, Jesus. So rather than hold on to the trappings of majesty and glory and eternity, he empties himself, the Bible says. He empties himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. We talked last time that the great sacrifice of Jesus wasn't so much the cross as it was the incarnation. That God himself became a person and became confined in that and being made in the likeness of men. And look at this, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that same humility needs to run in our veins because we will not find joy until we discover that it's not about us. We will never discover joy as long as our expectations exceed our experience. And so we've got to say, I died to self. What did Jesus say? Whoever wants to find his life, well, what? Lose it. But then in the middle of talking about humility of Jesus, Paul makes a powerful trans- trans- transition to the lordship of Jesus. Look at verse 9. For this reason also, because of who he was and what he did, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So he's got the name above every name. Look at this, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Every tongue, every knee, every knee's going to bow. And, you know, they used to have this great commercial back, I don't remember when it was, but it was a Fram filter commercial for Fram oil filters. And they had this greasy mechanic, and he was looking in the, in the camera, and he was holding up a Fram filter, and here's the jingle. He said, you can pay me now, or you can pay me later. And the idea behind it was, you can either pay me now to change your oil, or you can pay me later when your car breaks down, but when you pay me later, you're going to pay me a whole lot more. And, and I always think about that when I think about this fact. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess Jesus is Lord. And I'm telling you, it's going to be a whole lot more painful for those who, who wait until the time of eternal judgment to, to, to bend the knee and confess with the tongue. Kind of like, you can pay me now, you can pay me now, but everybody's going to bend the knee. So I choose to bow now. But look at the lordship of Jesus Christ in the, in the perspective of this. We're not talking about a humble servant anymore. We're dealing with the authority of Christ, the Lord. And this change in perspective about Jesus affects the change in instruction about how we respond to Him. Because look at chapter 2, verse 12. He says, so then, you see that? So then, the so then is going to tie what He's going to say to what He just said. So then, because of what I said. And so here's the question. Which part of what he just said is he referring to? It's an important part because I see at least two possibilities here. Was he referring to Jesus being obedient to the point of death on the cross? Look at verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to point of death on the cross, um, to, to the point of death, even death on the cross. So then, is this how it says? So then he deserves my service because of what he's done? I mean, if the focus was the cross, then my motivation to serve Jesus comes from the blessing of Jesus. At the cross, Jesus defeated sin. Not only did He defeat sin, but He eliminated the consequence of sin. The one who was without sin became sin on my behalf. He became your substitute when He went to the cross. He took your punishment. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. There's no remission of sin. And so God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus conquered sin. He won the victory. So I don't have to deal with guilt and shame. I don't have to deal with uh, a sense of regret and remorse because all that's been covered as far as east is from west, so far as God removed my sins from me, right? And my eternity is secured. These things have we written that you may know for sure that you have eternal life, 1 John 5, 13. So I don't have to worry about any of that because of what Christ did on the cross, and that's a game changer for me because his win becomes my win. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? For, the, for sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. Now watch this, verse 57. But thank God, he gives us the victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. His win's my win. You know what that means? I'm on the winning team. I don't even have to win myself. I'm on the right team. When I place my faith in Christ, I'm now on the winning team. It reminds me of a, of a, of a story about uh, Michael Jordan in the 1990s. In 1990, Michael Jordan put 69 on the Cleveland Cavaliers by himself. His, his total points that game, 69 points. Toward the end of the game, the coach put Jordan on the bench and he, he brought this rookie in named Stacy King. And at the end of the game, Stacy King got fouled, and he had two free throws. He made one of the two free throws, so he scored one point. 
Years later, he's telling the story, and he tells it like this. I'll always remember that night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70. (laughs) Isn't that great? That's how it is with us, only I don't even have to score one point. Because by virtue of what Jesus did, I'm a winner. And you know what that means? That means no matter what happens in my life, I'm winning. I mean, I can be going through some tough stuff. I'm winning. It's kind of like the story I heard about the the blonde in Vegas. You know, she's standing at a Coke machine, puts a dollar in, punches the button for the Coke comes out. And she goes, yes! She gets another dollar and she puts it in, punches a Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper comes out, yes! And she's got all these, she's doing it for some time. She's got all these Cokes around her. Somebody walks up to her, looks at her and says, what are you doing? And she says, duh, winning. (laughs) But you got to admit, she's probably doing better than 90% of the gamblers in Vegas. She's going to walk away with some drinks at least. And I always kind of feel that, think about that, because no matter what happens in my life, duh, I'm winning. And I can go through some hard things, and I can go through some tough stuff, and I can make some big mistakes. And I can fall into some pretty dark places and some pretty dark sin. But because of Jesus, I'm still winning. And so I want to serve Him as a way of spending the rest of my life to say thank you for what He what he did for me on the cross. Is that what that is? So then, because of Jesus going to the cross, or is it something else? Was he referring to Jesus being the Lord? I mean, if this is the case, then my motivation is not so much on gratitude as it is respect, right? Jesus deserves my service not so much because of what he did, but because of who he is. You see it? I serve because he's Lord. And so you say, which is it? Do I, do I serve Him for what He's done or do I serve Him for who He is? And, and the answer is yes. It's, it's obviously both. Look at what He says. The point is to serve Him, do it with joy. Look at verse 12. So then, my beloved, and I love the intimacy of that. So then, because of what I've just said, my beloved, feel the intimacy just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only. I mean, it's one thing you guys are, you know, you, here comes Paul straighten up. Everybody act right, falls in, falls in the room. Preacher just walked in, hide the beer and cigarettes, right? <laughs> That's what people always do. What do you do for a living? I'm a preacher. Oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> you know? Not only in my presence, but look, these guys were authentic. But now much more in my absence. And then he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. See that work out? Let me, let me emphasize this, okay? Don't, don't get all twisted up on this. He says, work out, not work on or work for. This isn't work salvation. In fact, verse 13 goes with verse 12. In fact, the translators don't translate it by putting a period between those two, but it's using a semicolon. For God is at work in you. That's the beginning of the next verse. For God is at work energizing you. That word at work means energizing. It is God doing the work through you. And so we're not talking about adding to the cross by finishing our salvation. We're talking about fleshing out the implication of our salvation through the way we then live our lives. And notice the method. In fear and trembling. And some of you are going, I don't like that. I mean, I don't want to be afraid of Jesus. I don't want to respond to Jesus in fear and trembling. Jesus is my friend. Yes, but he's your Lord. 
And sometimes I think we can become so accustomed to grace that we forget the terror of the holy. We become so desensitized to the sacred that we treat it as if it were common. And a very important part of godliness is this concept of reverence, which sometimes is lost in contemporary churches. It's vital. In fact, the word godliness itself really means reverence. Let me show you something. 2 Peter chapter 1, 5 through 7. I've parked on this passage really my whole life. Since I was a youth guy, uh, when I first started in ministry, I realized right away this passage is about the growth in discipleship. He says, add to your faith moral excellence to your moral excellence knowledge, which if you look at it, these are the sequential steps in spiritual growth. Moral knowledge to your knowledge, self-control, because knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, so I have to be careful with knowledge. To your self-control, perseverance. And look at this, to your perseverance, godliness. And then he would say, and to your godliness, brotherly kindness, to your brotherly kindness, love. But let's back up and look at godliness. He says, add to it godliness. Now, I always thought that godliness was acting godlike. You know, when you see somebody who's godlike, that person is godly. And so when I see someone that's godlike, I want to act like them so that I would too act godlike. But the word godliness in this usage doesn't have anything to do with action. It has everything to do with emotions and feelings. It's actually a word used of worship. But unlike, uh, but, but it's unusual in that it doesn't use the common word the church used for worship. It uses the pagan word that the Greeks and Romans used for worship. The word is sabane. And it literally meant fear and trembling. Exactly what he's back to in Philippians. And here's how it worked. Your average Greek or Roman, when he went to worship Zeus or Poseidon or whoever it was he was worshiping, he didn't have any concept at all of a personal relationship. There's no idea of him being a child of God. He was worshiping a God out of fear, and he would bring his offering out of fear. And his whole goal was to get the gods off his case, or even better, if he could do it just so, maybe he could get one of the gods on his side. And so Sabane had everything to do with superstition and and fear and um, uh, phoniness and all of that stuff that people would worship with, right? It's all ritualistic. The New Testament writers took this word and they added the prefix you, E-U. And whenever you put E-U in front of a word in that language, it turns it to good. And so it wasn't just that fear and trembling, it was a good sense of fear and trembling. And ultimately, that word evolved into our concept of what it is to be godly. And it works out like this. A godly person is a person who walks in the reverential fear of the holiness of God. A godly person has an elevated view of the majesty of Jesus. And he works out his salvation, how? In fear and trembling. He seeks to align his beliefs about God with his daily life. And what God has done for us becomes what God demands of us. And that becomes my motivation. 
that I seek to be pleasing to God in every way. And that works through my service. She said, well, what's that going to look like? Well, Paul describes it. So let's walk through this. What's joy and service look like? First of all, I pursue his pleasure. For it is God who's at work. There's that word energizing. God is at work in you both to will and to work for his, look at this, good pleasure. And that word means actually literally good glory. This word doesn't occur anywhere else outside of Christian writers. Did you know that? It's the craziest thing. It doesn't occur in, in, in Aristotle or any of the Greek philosophers. It doesn't occur anywhere else. And in fact, it was a word that the church had coined to try to describe an, an old Hebrew word that was used 56 times in the Old Testament to describe the pleasure of God. And this word became synonymous with that. Psalm 19.14 is where that word shows up. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be, and in this translation, acceptable, but it's also translated pleasing in your sight. That's the idea, the Hebrew equivalency of acceptable or pleasing. Colossians 1.19 uses that, for it was the Father's good pleasure, same word, for all the fullness to dwell in Him. So here's what happens. Everything about your service to God is for His pleasure. And since His pleasure is my pleasure then my service should always say, my pleasure. As I pursue His pleasure, I discover pleasure, and it becomes a joy. Secondly, I've got to guard my attitude. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. You know, I can do good things with the wrong spirit. I can say good things with the wrong tone. That's something I'm learning from my wife. We've been married 38 years, and I'm still learning that it's not so much what I say, but how I say it. And she will say in a very gracious and kind and teachable way, Bill, you're using that tone again. I'm like, what tone, woman? You know? <laughs> We've all been there. We've been in a situation you know, you need a part from the plumbing supply house and you're not a plumber and you go in. They're going to treat you totally different than they treat the plumbers. And they're going to be dismissive and oftentimes discourteous. They'll use all the right words. How can I help you? But that's not what they're saying. You ladies, you've had trouble with your tires on your car. Your suburban tire is bad or your minivan tire is bad. And, and your husband says, go down there to the tire place and they'll fix it. And you go in, that guy's going to give you a totally different experience than he would have given your husband. Now, he'll say all the same words, but it's going to be a completely different tone. And you know it. You pull up to that window at that fast food store and they may ask how they can help you, but you know they don't really want to help you. It's like, it's like that beautiful moment in that old movie, Ghostbusters. Remember when she answers the phone? We got that clip. Watch this. This is it. This is what I'm talking You're about. You're going to answer that? Quit better jobs than this. Ghostbusters, what do you want? Isn't that it? That's it. And we, you know, we go serve in the nursery, but we're furious about it. You've wrecked my Sunday. I got to go stand at the door and pass out things and act nice. You know, got to drive the golf cart. It's 100 degrees out there. I got to teach at Sunday school again. Got to go help somebody. Can I say this as lovingly as possible? If you can't serve with joy, then stop serving. Doing it with the wrong attitude is worse than not doing it. I think that's what he's saying. 
And then I create a contrast. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. And look at this, create a contrast. So that you may prove yourself. Here's why. So that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. Above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Man, this is a crooked and perverse generation. I mean, it's been years and it's gotten worse since then, but I was, I was at a place in Houston one time. A buddy called and said, you want to go to lunch? I think the name of the joint was Cadillacs, and it was like one of these bar and grill deals, you know, kind of like a Bennigan's or whatever. And uh, So we go there, and we're sitting there having lunch. There's a table of about, looks like about seven or eight, maybe assistants or something, secretaries. I don't know what, I don't know what, what they were doing, but they were having lunch that day. You tell it was a big day, somebody's birthday. All of a sudden, in the middle of this crowded restaurant, this guy dressed as a cop walks in with a boom box. He puts the boom box on their table, pulls out a pair of handcuffs, handcuffs one of these ladies to the table and says, I've heard you've been a really bad girl. And right there in the middle of it starts to do uh, the equivalency of some sort of male strip deal. We're sitting there. I mean, he's bumping into the guy next to me. We're totally humiliated and embarrassed. Don't know what to do. Don't know where to look. You know, it's like, oh, I don't want to look there. I'm looking here. You know, it's just totally ridiculous. And at the end, when it was all over, you know, we're just like standing there like deer in the headlights. He looks at me and says something very profound. Here's what he said. He said, man, this sure makes it easier to create a contrast. And I thought, you know, the darker this world gets, the brighter the church should shine. Is that happening? Look at what Paul says, you, that you appear as, as lights in the darkness. Isn't that what he says? You appear as lights in the world. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean like this little light of mine, oh, somebody's going to blow it out. The, the literal there is luminaries in the cosmos. Stars, you're a supernova in the galaxy. That's your calling. Man, when you serve with joy in the midst of a world that is so deeply miserable and unhappy and angry, you create a vivid contrast to the glory of God. And then I trust the word, verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that, it, that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. I read this recently. A record low, 20% of Americans now say the Bible is the literal word of God, down from 24% the last time the question was asked in 2017, and half what it was at its high point in 1980 and 84. Meanwhile, a new high of 29% say the Bible is a collection of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. This marks the first time significantly more Americans have viewed the Bible as not divinely inspired than as the literal word of God. That's where we live. And man, it slays me. I mean, you look at this world. We've had 2,000 years of the teaching of Jesus. Get a map out, spin a globe, and, and look at the world where the teaching of the Word of God was preeminent. Look at a place where Judeo-Christian ethic was the core driving value of that culture. And look at that nation, that country, that place, and ask yourself, where do I want to live? If I could spin a globe and live anywhere I wanted, and I'll tell you where you want to live. You want to live there. 
Because for 2,000 years, the Word of God has proven itself as the way of life and has created the greatest civilizations in the history of the world. You go to those other places where other religious teaching are foundational, and it's a miserable place. The Word of God has worked for 2,000 years, but now we've got a bunch of academicians that have educated themselves into imbecility and celebrities with the moral conviction of a stray cat, with the private life that looks like a dumpster fire, and they're telling us that we've got it all wrong, and we're dumb enough to believe it, and the world has gone upside down to a point where you don't even know what pronoun to use anymore, and a Supreme Court justice can't define what a woman is. I've got a grandson that's six, and he can tell you what a woman is. He knows intuitively. And it's hard because our children, families, and friends are being influenced by this, and that puts pressure on us to cave to the idiocy. And we either follow God's Word as our authority or we drift into the quagmire of culture. Let me tell you, I choose to hold the Word of God. I don't understand it all, but what I understand has changed my life. And I will always understand that that's the power of life. It's like Peter with Jesus. When all the people left Jesus and Jesus turned to his disciples and says, are y'all leaving too? And what did Peter say? He said, where will we go? You alone have the words of life. That's the word of God. Paul says, holding tightly to the word of God, understanding the authority of God's word. Let the word of God loose. You don't have to defend it or protect it. It's like a lion. Turn it loose. It'll take care of business. And it'll change your life. Change mine. And then finally, spread the joy. Look at verse 17. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, this is Paul talking about his own life. He said, I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. He said, even if that's happening, you know what, you know what the drink offering was? It was the libation. It's what the priest poured over the offering. It wasn't the offering. It was what they poured on the offering to make the offering smell better. This is the marinade, right? This is the sweet baby rays. This is what you put on at the end to make it better. And Paul said, that's my life. I'm not the sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice. My life was spent trying to make the sacrifice smell better to this world around me. And he said, and I'll rejoice and share my joy with all of you. Man, that just makes Romans 12, 1 come alive, doesn't it? I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your body a living sacrifice. Paul said, man, I've presented myself as the, as the drink offering. He says it again to Timothy at the end of his life. He says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And a lot of people would think, what a wasted life. Paul would say, what a fulfilled life. It has given me joy. It's been my pleasure to give my life fully over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to serve you, and by serving you, I serve Him. So that's me. That's my whole life. And I rejoice and share my joy with all of you. And notice He tells them to spread that joy. You too. This is for us. You too. I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul infected people with joy. And that's our calling. It was a lifetime labor of love. No matter what happened, no matter what somebody said, no matter what somebody did, 
no matter how demanding or demeaning the moment became, his reply was always the same. What was it? My pleasure. And that becomes our challenge. We're called to serve with joy. Can I ask you something? I mean, let's get get real. First of all, are you serving? And secondly, are you doing it with joy? I got to admit to you, sometimes in the ministry, it just becomes tedious. It's like it's another meeting to go to. It's another need to feel. It's another person that needs something. It's another person that calls. It's And you can get to the point where you're serving and doing all the right things with all the wrong attitude. And it's really better not to even serve. And so the Spirit of God speaks to me too and says, hey, Bill, if you're going to do it, do it with joy. Would you ask Him with me to put that in our heart? Let's just go before the Father right now. Father, as we just prostrate ourselves before you emotionally and spiritually in this moment, we just want to first of all thank you for Jesus and the cross, for what he did. And God, I I really, we really want to spend the rest of our lives trying to find a way to say thank you for that. Um, But we also want to do it with fear and trembling, knowing that he is Lord. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. And so we serve you because of what you've done and who you are. But Father, we don't always do it with the right spirit. And so these words of Paul become convicting to us. Give us joy. Help us to do everything without grumbling and and complaining. Give us joy. Let us create a contrast in this dark world. Not to get angry at the world for its darkness, but to become so bright that people see who Jesus is, we're going to hold on to your truth because it's the only truth we have. And Father, we pray that you would use us to spread that joy. In those times when we're tired, in those times when we're hurt, in times when we're angry, Father, speak through us the joy of Jesus. Let us be the example of Christ as Paul was for us. In his name we pray, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.